Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. All right, here's a joke. So, uh, Mushroom walks into a bar, right? Bartender goes, oh, oh, bruh, 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 bruh. No mushrooms allowed in the bar. Mushroom goes, oh, but I'm such a fun guy. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM, American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. Welcome to the new year, everybody. Yes. If you're hearing this, you survived your relatives and eating all that cheese. Well done. Nice. You just got a joke from Barry Jenkins, director of Moonlight. That'll break the ice. That movie's up for a bunch of Golden Globes this weekend. And coming up, we'll speak with filmmaker Mike Mills about his nominated movie, 20th Century Women. Also ahead, singer-songwriter Natalie Merring, a.k.a. Wise Blood, DJs a party full of pillow talk. We learned about the cat behind the classic comic Crazy Cat, alliterative. And Brendan and I went to Cuba, and all we brought back was the story of Guarapo. It's a drink, not a folk hero. But first, small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The first order of business is to repeal and replace Obamacare. Mariah Carey is facing the music after her botched TV appearance on New Year's Rockin' Eve. A new law gives French employees the right to disconnect from work after hours. And now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Sadie Stein. She is contributing editor at the wonderful literary magazine, The Paris Review. Happy New Year, Sadie. And what story... Are you going to be talking about at parties this week? Well, in honor of dryuary, I thought I would talk about beer. <laughs> there is a story um, that came out of an Oxford University study which shows that the taste of beer is impacted by the music you listen to. So, first of all, for those who don't know, dryuary, many people stop yeah, drinking for the month of January. They do. They take a break. Wrong show to listen to if you're doing <laughs> that, by the way. So, how does how does music affect beer? Well, according to this finding, when you listen to higher-pitched music, like flute or violin, it brings out the sweet notes in your beer, whereas lower brass instruments can enhance the bitterness. Right. Okay. What does rock music do? What what does Megadeth do? You know, I think you're going to have to um, run some tests and um, and do some (laughs) pairings and and, um, and see what you find out. This could explain why when I had friends over the other night and I played marching band music, They left because it was the beer started to taste weird. They they were lager men. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what it was. So so you're saying violin music is it enhances the sweet notes. So so classical music would be a, a great time to maybe pour yourself a nice lager. A, a classic pairing of you know Vivaldi and oh and <laughs> but I mean but do you, I never think of beer in classical music, right? I think of beer yeah. in rock. Well, music. maybe we should. Twenty seventeen, Brenda. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> We're doing it right. Sadie Stein, thank you so much for the small talk. Thank you for having me. And now time for cocktails, sans beer, I think. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history and then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a suburban lawn, but the sprinklers shooting out jets of booze. That's a terrible idea. First to history, this week back in 1919, one of the most unlikely disasters in U.S. history took place. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. It sounds like a kid's fantasy, a giant wave of sugar. The reality was not so sweet. It was a cold January day in Boston, 1919. And at a distilling company with the deceptively pleasant name of Purity, a calamity was brewing in the form of a giant steel storage vat full of molasses. 50 feet tall, 90 feet wide, it had never been an especially great example of engineering. 
Molasses oozed from leaks all over the thing, but when advised of the problem, the company's solution was to paint the steel brown so the leaks wouldn't show so much. At around 12.40 that afternoon, the inevitable happened. The vat burst with a ground-shaking roar accompanied by what sounded like machine gun fire. Those were the rivets popping out. Then a 25-foot wave of molasses, 2.3 million gallons of it, gushed outside, leveling buildings in its wake. It was as awful as it was absurd. 21 people died, 150 more were injured, and it was only this year that scientists figured out why the accident was so deadly. Apparently, the wintry air cooled the molasses, making it four times thicker and stickier. Rescuers couldn't reach people who slowly drowned, trapped in goo. Purity's owners tried to blame the disaster on anarchist terrorists, but they eventually settled out of court for under a million in today's dollars. The cleanup, meanwhile, took weeks. And for decades later, locals swore on summer days you could still smell molasses. That was the history lesson. And now for the drink to go along with it, I am joined by Beth Hoselton. She is the bar manager at State Street Provisions, which is located near Boston's north end where the molasses flood struck. Beth, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, Beth, you heard this history. What cocktail did it inspire you to make? We came up with a cocktail called a sticky situation uh, because, of course, molasses flooding would create a bit of a sticky mess. Yeah, (laughs) as as does consuming lots of cocktails. You are completely correct. So, Beth, uh, tell me how you make this drink. So we've created a tiki-inspired cocktail. Um, A lot of the molasses coming into Boston was coming from those warmer Caribbean islands. So we're going to start with two ounces of rum. Okay. uh, And we're going to combine that with a half ounce of dry orange curacao, a half ounce of lime juice, a half ounce of Amaro Montenegro, and half an ounce of uh, molasses simple syrup that we made. And is there a garnish? Yeah, we're actually garnishing it with a lime boat that we fill with some overproof rum and light on fire. You're saying lime boat as if everyone has one, knows what a lime boat is. <laughs> I've never heard of a lime boat. It's so basic. You just cut a lime in half, empty out all the fruit inside, and you fill that with some rum, which is uh, very easy to light on fire. Wow. Yeah, it's to uh, represent the hot molasses that met the cold, cold Boston air, and that caused it to slow down and, and become very disastrous. What are you supposed to do when it's given to you and it's on fire? Like how does, Oh, does the yeah, fire... you just dump it upside down and it becomes part of the drink. This is tragic that you're setting a boat on fire to commemorate another disaster. This seems kind <laughs> of uh, macabre. Beth Hoselton, she is the bar manager at State Street Provisions in Boston. And speaking of rum and sugary things, later in the show you'll hear us drink both uh, yes. in some tape we collected on our recent dinner party download trip to Cuba. We talked all about that trip on a special podcast-only bonus episode we put out a few weeks back. You can hear that and lots of other special stuff if you subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. Midnight molasses dripping down 
All right, we've had drinks, made some small talk. Now, this party needs some music. And here with that is Natalie Maring. She makes gorgeous music under the name Wise Blood. Her new album, Front Row Seat to Earth, sets soaring vocals against lush horns and almost classical-sounding piano. It made a bunch of critics year-end best-of lists. Here she is to spin us some of her favorite songs, from super low-fidelity cassette tape demos to pop opera. Hello, this is Natalie from Wise Blood, and you're listening to my dinner party. I live in a really tiny studio apartment. There's not a lot of space to go hide and not bond. So any dinner party of mine is going to be a collection of people probably sitting on the floor in pillows very close to one another. Without further ado, here's my dinner party soundtrack. My first song is a rare cut by the band The Stranglers called My Young Dreams. The Stranglers are an English rock band who emerged via the punk rock scene in the 70s. And every time I've ever put this song on, somebody asks me what it is because it is so infectious. The Stranglers had an amazing piano player who was capable of playing these neoclassical piano lines in the context of a rock song. Which I try to do a lot in my music is try to build that bridge between very popular classical music and modern pop music. The next song I would play is by an Italian prog rock band called Opus Avantra. It's called L'Altalena. So prog stands for progressive, and this band was progressive by using a lot of orchestral elements, and the lead singer was actually an opera singer. So in the 70s, because I feel like Italy has such a wonderful, rich history with opera, there were some rock bands that were incorporating those elements. This is a great main chorus song because the main chorus is a hearty stew. It's just like a big bowl of slop. And my style of cooking in the tiny apartment is usually to slow cook everything to avoid being in the microscopic kitchen. So I feel like this song adds just a little refinement to the whole affair. My third song is going to bring it all back home, and this track is Roy Wood's Wake Up. Unlock the this song is for... Post-dinner, everybody's maybe in a food coma. There's like a fog, a pleasant, wonderful fog, and maybe it's time to open up and really catch up. Now, Roy Wood, who is an electric light orchestra, 
managed to use the sound of water droplets in this song in a very melodic way. I feel like my knowledge of harmony actually stemmed from being a part of choirs in high school. I was maybe like the edgiest person in my choir because I had dyed hair and I was wearing punk shirts and going to punk concerts but still showing up to practice on time. And I feel like I'd got just enough training to find out what I liked about music theory and classical music and then not enough to really dispel the mystery surrounding how music works. My song that I'm going to play for everybody at my dinner party is going to be Generation Y. Now we're leaving the nostalgia of the 70s and entering the real issues that are happening right now. When to see end of day I consider myself a millennial, maybe one that kind of got there later, like I wanted to identify with Generation X or something. But I think as millennials, it's important to understand how to be proactive in a new way that doesn't involve just being inside of an echo chamber like Facebook, but learning how to connect with the people that don't agree with you. And I would hope that the vibe this song creates is kind of a testament to intimacy in these really strange times. Dinner Party soundtrack from Natalie Maring, a.k.a. Wiseblood. She heads out on tour in February. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but coming up, director Mike Mills talks about his acclaimed new film, 20th Century Women, and we take you to Cuba for a drink. It's pretty nice of us. That and more when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, the descendants of Emily Post tell us the difference between ethics and etiquette. Mm. And we learn about the crazy cat behind the comic Crazy Cat. Got Weird. that? Yep. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right. And this week, it's director and designer Mike Mills. He got his start in the music biz, making videos for acts like Air and Moby and designing posters for the Beastie Boys. But he's probably best known for his feature film, Beginners, which earned its star Christopher Plummer an Academy Award. That movie was based on Mill's dad, and his latest, 20th Century Women, is about his mom. It stars Annette Bening as Dorothea, an older single mother, circa 1979. She asks a punk photographer played by Greta Gerwig and a jaded teen played by Elle Fanning to teach her son about being a modern man. When I met Mills, I asked him to describe his mom. My mother was a completely unusual, iconoclastic woman. Didn't do anything that a woman should be doing at the time. Uh, you know, had short hair, wore pants. If you want, like, a real quick rundown of my mom, just put together Humphrey Bogart and Amelia Earhart, but lean a little bit more towards <laughs> Humphrey Bogart, you know? Yeah. She had me when she was 40. 
So there she is as a middle-aged woman, as a 55-year-old woman, raising this teenager in Santa Barbara who's into punk rock and skateboarding and and, and feelings and yeah. emotional life. Yeah. And we make like a great odd couple. We make like a crazy contrast. Well, it's interesting because your mother, as you describe her and as she's depicted on screen by Nett Benning, is on the one hand emotionally reticent, mm-hmm. and on the other hand, she's a free spirit mm-hmm. who writes her son fake notes to uh, get him out of school. Tell me a little more about that interesting blend. Um, Annette Benning loved these contradictions, and Annette Benning mm. had the emotional intelligence to really play with them and, and see them as like the fuel of her of her performance. So my mom, you know, people born in the twenties, they grew up watching films all the time during the thirties and forties. And if you think about female characters in films from that time. They are funny and sarcastic mm. and empowered and subversive and have like a lot of bandwidth. You know, they can really go all over the place. And it's also, you know, my mom had a really beautiful anti-authoritarian streak with a sort of socialist tinge, you know. And if you're a teenager in the Depression, I think there's a lot of that coming at you from American culture. And Jamie, you can't just keep skipping school and making excuses. Wait, wait a minute. Why not? Why can't he just skip school? If he, if he has a legitimate need to be away. Well, then I need a legitimate real note from you. Okay. With your real signature. Wow. Please excuse Jamie from school this morning. He was doing volunteer work for the Sandinistas. Please excuse Jamie from school this morning. He was involved in a small plane accident. Fortunately, he was not hurt. Dorothea is just one of the 20th century women of the title. There's Abby who's this punky, free-spirited border played by Greta Gerwig and, and Julie played by Elle Fanning. How did you go about working up these characters? Because as well, a man, yeah. you, have, you have inherent limitations in, in writing these young yeah. women. Yeah. yeah, inherent limitations and a real need to see them all the time, right? And <laughs> to accept my outsider-ness yeah. and to the lived experience of a woman. Uh, so I interviewed a lot of women, and Abby is based a, a, a bit, a lot, a good amount on my real sister's experience of going to New York, finding herself, went to Parsons, found mm. photography, found a more active, alive, empowered version of female sexuality, and um, then did get cervical cancer and had to come home to the, like her small town, Santa Barbara, yeah. and sort of like have her life exploded and have to start over with the with the thought that she might not be able to have kids. Mm. And so my sister very generously gave me that part of her life, gave me that story. And I interviewed her a lot. And and Greta interviewed her on her own Mm. without me there, sort of more woman to woman, and told me some amazing things that I didn't quite learn. And and Greta and her just being woman to woman had a really different conversation. And I really loved that that happened. And it really fed the role. Yeah, what what was one of those things making to the film? Can you remember one? Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a great moment in the movie where Greta's talking about how she moved to New York and this thing of like she learned how to make she learned how to be sexual <laughs> in yeah. a way that she found empowering. Yeah. And that really came out of a conversation between those two women who I both adore both of them. Yeah. And Greta told it to me as I and Greta's a great writer and director, right? And mm-hmm. Greta's a real art you know, full, complete artist person. And I'm always trying to engage the actor as much as I can in all levels. So I was like, Greta, can you just write that up or memorize it or just put it in your own words? And I want to put it right here in my story. And just on that day, just know I'm going to ask you to tell your version of what you've learned. You mm-hmm. know, so, And it's one of my favorite little moments in the movie. 
And Greta did an amazing job of bringing that to life. It feels so like just she's telling her story. I figured out how to be looked at by men and how to make them excited and uncomfortable. And I was so cocky and I was so angry and I was so happy. <laughs> One of the other characters in the movie is the year 1979, um, mm-hmm. and it appears through music, through archival photos, and the attitudes of the character. Why select that year to place this movie? Well, because I'm starting from personal material in my life, that it makes basic sense for my life. That's basically the age I was, and I needed my depression-era mom to be raising this punk rock kid. Right? Yeah. So <laughs> you're in one of the late 70s years, mm. and I didn't want to make a nostalgic movie. You know, I yeah. wanted to be very accurate to the time, but I felt like I feel like 1979, in a weird way, is like the beginning of now in so many different ways. Um, if you, the talking heads are heavily featured in my film, both musically and as like a cultural moment. They are so relevant and influential and alive right now, their music and their, and their inventions. And even David Byrne as a model of a man mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and as a version of a straight man, I think he has like a tremendous amount of currency right now as, as a viable working model of how to be a decent guy, you know? And that's really interesting to me. And then just everything from the oil crisis to the Islamic Revolution to the birth of home computing to the transition from Carter to Reagan. There's just so many weird echoes to now. And so I just I liked that and I exploited it. It wasn't why I picked then, but it was my way of talking about then as a constantly how to relate it to now. Well, one of the things I really like about this movie is the writing. I think it's really strong. Um, the dialogue's great. But one of my favorite parts of your writing are these succinct phrases that kind of capture a life lesson. They're almost like these Zen quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a bunch of them written down. One of them is, uh, quote, wondering if you're happy is just a shortcut to being depressed. Mm-hmm. Another is, it's hard, but then it gets better, but then it gets hard again. <laughs> and I, I could go on. And I'm, my question is, are these quotes from your mother or are these quotes that have just emerged during your life <laughs> that you kind of jot down in a notebook and, and then you write around them? or how, Well, how they um, it's a kind of a combination of things. And my scripts do take two or three years, right? And a lot of life happens in two or three years. I don't yeah. go around writing in a notebook like Mike, Mike's pithy thoughts on the world <laughs> to put into a movie. But, um, Disappointing. Half those, half, those <laughs> half those lines you just mentioned are my attempt to really understand and get, make a portrait of my mom. You know, my mm-hmm. mom would say stuff like that. It's really much my mom's worldview. And then there's other things that I did. You know, I became a father midway through my writing process. And it was really interesting to get to use my mom's, this fictional character based on my mom as, a, what do you want to call it, a voice for me to say my own stuff about yeah. being a parent. And she, she has a line, um, she says to Greta Gerwig's character, you get to see him out in the world as a person. I never will as his mother, you know. And that really came from being a dad and watching my little boy go off to preschool and into the arms of someone else. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. And then watching him, you know, he couldn't see I was watching and I had left, but I was still watching. And he was kind of different, you know, like he, his gestures, the way he was talking to these people, I was like, oh, wow, this is how it's going to be, huh? (laughs) (laughs) And I I went home and wrote that line. So it, it was, it was, Yet another weird gift my mom has given me in that this character let me talk about being a parent on my own. And in many ways, Dorothea recognizing and trying to come to terms with the fact that 
James is a different person is a major theme in the movie. Yeah. As a son and then as a writer who's trying to inhabit the position of the mother, which is a trip. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, This thing kind of kept coming up to me, which is as interwoven as me and my mother are, were, we were once one body, right? Mm -hmm. And as much as I dearly love her and as much as she's really just the mountain in my horizon line that I orientate towards, there's key things that I can never understand about her. There's key things that will always remain out of my grasp. And same for her towards me. And maybe that's a unspoken, not often talked about part of the contract of being a parent and a child that is really hard to understand. And But central and bittersweet would be putting it lightly. Yeah. So your wife is the writer and director Miranda July, yeah. who we've had on the show a couple of times. She is a strong 20th and 21st century woman. Yeah. And uh, I, I wonder, did you consult her while making this movie? Well, we, we kind of, we try to keep our, our work lives, we met as adults, you know, mm-hmm. and we work in very different ways. And we try to keep it to a minimum. And we're very supportive to each other, but not like in the nitty gritty of what we're working on. Because ultimately, that's a very personal, private sure. journey, you know. Yeah. Um, but d- and Miranda did read the script um, once and was very key, like had some really amazing insights to it. And she saw my edit once in a real pivotal moment and was also really super insightful. She's amazing at story. But maybe more importantly than both those answers is I am constantly wanting to impress Miranda. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like, you know, you, you try it when you're first dating someone, right? And you make a mixtape and you spend three days on it because mm-hmm. you really want to impress mm-hmm. them. So I spent like five years on my movie, partly because I really want to make Miranda fall in love with me all over again. Mike Mills, a man who, when his wife asks him for a dinner and a movie, takes her literally. (laughs) His film 20th Century Women is up for Best Motion Picture Comedy, the Golden Globes this weekend. And by the way, you can hear our several conversations with the great Miranda July. They are all on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Head over there and look around. And now, the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. And this week, we went to great lengths to bring you a story, mm-hmm. specifically all the way to Cuba. That's right. As regular listeners may know, this still is amazing to me. Brendan and I led a tour of public radio fans through Havana a few weeks back. Well, led is a strong word, Yeah, I think. we hosted it, I guess would be the, the appropriate That's term. right. Our, our guide, Ali Infante, led us around, and yeah. we just asked him annoying questions. <laughs> That's right. I'm sure he was overjoyed by them. And uh, outside one of our tour destinations was a little stand selling what Ali told us was Cuba's signature street beverage. So I bought a glass full of it, pulled Ali aside, and I had him tell us about it. First, though, I asked him to tell us about the historic locale where we were standing. Oh, well, right now we are at the house of Hemingway bought in Havana in 1940. This Hemingway's pad. Right, right, right. So it is where he lived from 1940 till you can consider 1961 when he committed suicide because, well, he committed suicide in the United States, but he considered this one like his home. Havana was his real home. Yeah, you can say that. So right in front of the house, kind of down the driveway from the house, is this stand selling. This is guarapo. Guarapo is sugar cane juice. And is this something that's common everywhere? You're going to find it all over the place? All over, all over. So in Cuba, this is, uh, I don't know, like the number one natural drink. It's what we call the uh, Cuban Red Bull. (laughs) 
<laughs> is it gonna? It doesn't have caffeine in it though. It's just we're talking a pure sugar high. No, it's, it's just pure. It's sugar in its most pure form. It's uh, just a sugar cane pressed. You press a sugar cane, the juice that comes out. Yeah, it's just sugar. And what did you call this? You said that this was the the son of of rum or something. Yeah, no, no. It's the other way around. So rum is the happy son of guarapo. And this is because obviously rum is derived from sugar. Tell us how that happens. Sure. So well, um, in a sugar factory. To obtain sugar, the sugar cane is uh, pressed, and after cooking the juice for several hours, part of it crystallizes. That's the part from where the sugar is obtained, and the second part becomes a very thick liquid, molasses, and uh, is where the rum is obtained. Yeah, right. You ferment that molasses, I guess. Yeah, it has to undergo uh, several fermentation processes, but the first alcohol obtained from it is about 192 proof. <laughs> so you want to, like, maybe tamp that down a little, maybe water it down a bit. Yeah, maybe like, you might want to add, you know, a toss of water to that one. <laughs> so you get you get the cane juice. I'm going to try a little bit of this stuff. And I will say that it is served as every drink that I've had in Cuba is served with sort of a piece of fruit somewhere in there. And also, is this jutting from the glass, well, is that a piece of sugar cane? Yeah. And actually, this one is not the juice by itself. Uh, it's combined with a pineapple juice and lime which, you know, it's really refreshing, you know, it gives a really refreshing taste. It's really pretty. I would say that it's a, yeah, it's a pineapple-y color, kind of an orangish, greenish thing, probably from the lime. I'm going to take a sip. Oh, that is really refreshing and really sweet. I feel like I could run about three miles <laughs> if I down this whole thing. My understanding, though, is that also you can doctor this with its uh, Happy Sun rum. Oh, yeah, you can crank it up. Yeah. <laughs> Can we do that right now? Sure, yeah. Let's go there and put some uh, Añejo. That's uh, aged rum. It, you know, adds a little bit of taste to the drink. That's what I want. Taste. That's why I want the rum in there. Okay, yeah, let's go for it. All right, so now we're under kind of a tarp where they're serving all of this stuff. And before I get my uh, drink topped off with rum, we're going to watch them actually feed sugarcane into this machine to press it. <laughs> It's an enormous metal machine with a bunch of gears, and you turn this big wheel, and they feed huge stalks of sugarcane into it. <laughs> and there's juice squirting out all over the place. I actually just got squirted a little bit. So basically, like a bamboo-looking stalk of sugarcane goes in, and out comes flattened, pulpy, ropey wood, devoid of excellent sugar juice. All right, now that we've seen the cane get pressed, I'm going to go over and get my guarapo topped off with some rum. Gracias. The gentleman here just gave me a whole bottle of Havana Club to pour in. Oh, he's saying tip it up, tip it up. <laughs> Gracias. That was a mistake to put an entire bottle of rum in my hand and tell me to serve myself. Oh, there we go. Carapo, the way Hemingway would want it. Oh, 
There you go, me sipping sugar juice and rum in Havana. Meanwhile, I was napping under a palm tree. We were working really hard that day. Thank you for your help, Brendan. You're welcome. By the way, the music you're hearing was taped live on the spot. There was just music all over Havana. We could talk amazing. about that place for hours, really. But folks, you can hear some of the details of that trip on the latest episode of our occasional behind-the-scenes series, Speakeasy. That's right. You can give it a listen at dinnerpartydownload.org. All right. After the break, a beautiful new outtake from the late Elliot Smith and Emily Post's great-great-grandchildren tell you how to behave. Stick around. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll hear a rare outtake from the late pop genius Elliot Smith, and we learn about the mysterious world and even more mysterious life of maybe the greatest cartoonist ever. But first, let's learn some manners. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and sometimes we ask them to wildly unqualified celebrities. But today, we are joined by the veritable poster guy in gal of etiquette. Ah, uh, yes. Get that? See where I'm going with that? Post. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning, the great-great-grandkids of Emily Post. They're co-authors of Emily Post's Etiquette, the 18th edition. Lizzie, Dan, thanks for joining us once again, and Happy New Year to you both. Thank you for having us. We are delighted with your terrible puns. <laughs> I'm just going to laugh politely. <laughs> That's the way you do That's it. That's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Are you telling me you're post-pun? Is that what I'm... Is that what you're... <laughs> Yeah. We'll keep you posted. Fun. Oh my gosh. Okay. Okay. Let's uh, I'm going to stop this by asking you a question. Do it. There's been some news this week about the Congressional Ethics Committee. Uh, Congress, for those who don't know, tried to basically do away with that committee. They failed to do so. But it got us thinking, how do you distinguish ethics from etiquette? You know what I'm saying? Or are they two sides of the same coin? Cousin Dan. This was a favorite theme of Emily Post. Yeah. She thought that, that really? ethics were at the heart of good etiquette, a, a set of core principles or values that the particular rules or advice are derived from. Which are? For the Emily Post tradition, we've identified consideration, respect, and honesty as our core principles. Oh, that's not going to work for Congress. <laughs> but so, so all of your right. etiquette tips derive from those concepts? And if they don't, there is a very good chance that they derive from a tradition that American culture has chosen to up- uphold. E- even when a rule doesn't appear to derive from those core principles, it usually did in the context that it came from. So if you've got a traditional manner, it was probably an expression of consideration, respect, and honesty at the time mm. that it came about. So it's consideration, respect, and honesty are the guideposts. I just made a pun without meaning to. Sorry Another about that. one. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Gold star. Can we get a little dinging count of how many post puns? I really didn't mean to make that. All right. <laughs> let's get to our listeners' questions. Not surprisingly, this week they had a lot of uh, residual holiday party and gift-giving questions. Are you ready for these? Born ready. Okay. You were kind (laughs) of. You literally were born ready. Um, So our first question comes from Alexis in Portland, Oregon. And Alexis asks, every year for the last five years, my dad has gone out of his way to buy me a very particular tea from a special shop, believing this tea to be my favorite. Hmm. In fact, I don't like it at all. Never have (laughs) and usually give it away to friends. I once tried to casually mention that I had a new favorite tea, my actual favorite, but he didn't hear me or remember. This year, he bought me two packages. Should I tell him I'm not actually fond of this tea and save him the annual trips to the shop? Or should I just keep this little charade as another holiday tradition, like pretending I love mom's fudge? Oh. Wow. 
Maybe she needs to address this to a therapist. Yeah, I know, but, right? Um, how about you guys give it a crack? I don't know. I, I always come down in that land of be honest and find a gentle, nice way to be honest about it. Say, hey, Dad, it's been so nice over the years, but I'd really love to try a different tea at this point. I think it's okay to say that. Or, but Alexis has tried that. No, she hasn't. She's done a very gentle... No, and gentle... the question she says, I once tried to casually mention that I had a new favorite tea. One time. One time casually mentioning does not an effort in this direction make. Tell them three times. Give them a chance to really hear. It. All right. Or don't feel so aggrieved and receive that gift well, and we'll address the question of regifting next year. Alexis, <laughs> I hope that you took that to heart. Here's something from uh, Nancy in Birmingham, Alabama. We actually addressed this ourselves in a, a Facebook Live session we did where listeners asked us etiquette questions, very oh, ill-advised of them without you guys backing us up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we thought we'd run this by you to get an expert opinion. Uh, Nancy writes... If the invitation says the party goes from 5 to 7 p.m., I have always assumed I could drop in any time between 5 and 7, as long as I left by 7. But when I recently attended a baby shower, I missed the honoree unwrapping her gifts and passing them around, and the guests were already starting in on the food. What's up? Um, I, funny enough, Dan, is Guil- it okay? Guilty confession, is it, yes, is it please. Okay? Is it, okay, so Dan recently had a baby shower, and sure enough, the, the invitation issued by his mother uh, had a start and end time, which is usually an indication that you can show up any point within that defined time. Sure. That's usually something you would use for a housewarming or a backyard afternoon barbecue type of thing, not yeah. something where you have a specific... Uh, Um, event happening at the party, like a gift opening. Um, If you get an invite to something that has a specific event associated with it, just show up at the start time. Your host, I think, technically made a mistake in issuing the invitation that way. But these are two different questions, right? Because I think it's five. showing up between 5 and 7, it's like, yeah, sure, show up between 5 and 7, but why would you expect they would wait for you till (laughs) 6.59 to serve the food and open the gift? Right, exactly. You just know that you might miss something if you show up more than halfway through the event. And also, by the way, I would I would say that as a guest, when it comes to a baby shower, they're doing you a favor by telling you how long the baby shower is so you can show up after all of that baby shower Ooh. stuff. Just <laughs> oh, so damn boring. Man. <laughs> uh, that's just me, yeah. though. I don't think that's probably in your book. All right, so now I know to always have an end time when I invite you to a party, Rico. Please do. <laughs> and here's something from David in Los Angeles, California. And David writes... A friend gave me a beautifully wrapped little gift of chocolates. Just as I was about to open the chocolates, I discovered that, this is all in capital letters, they're expired. (laughs) (laughs) Should I say anything to her? I'm hesitant to do so. However, if she bought them recently, then she's been had. (laughs) Either way, chocolate does not age well. What do I do? Dano, what do you think? Oh, boy. Every once in a while, you got to take one for the team. Yeah, yeah, right? That's what I'm thinking. Just just throw it out and don't say anything. Yeah, this is the classic thought that clowns, right? Unless there was something so expensive about these chocolates that, that you really think that someone would want to get them refunded or something. But I, I think, generally yeah. speaking, you're not going to point out the faux pas here. You're going to uh, yeah. thank them for the thought. It is, it is possible, think... though. There are chocolates out there that are absurdly expensive. Oh, but yeah. don't you think that the, the his she's been had, that's him searching for a reason to I tell agree. her that because if the chocolatier is this corrupt um i think they'll go out of business before you know david calls them no nope. or she regifted and she's not really your friend and so david i've heard about tea that makes a nice regift. <laughs> yes that's right get her a very special tea all right well lizzie post and daniel post ending you are our friends 
always. Um, thanks so much for coming by and telling your audience how to behave. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much, guys. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning, they're the co-hosts of the podcast Awesome Etiquette, in which they tackle all manners of decorum. It's posted on iTunes. Stop it. It is my fatal flaw. No. I'm so sorry. Folks, <laughs> feel free to lob your etiquette questions at us, and we will pose them to an expert of our choosing. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org or call our hotline. It's 929-335-3653. That is 929-335-DNLD. Call Post Haste. And now, time for Chattering Class, in which we're schooled by an expert on some party-worthy topic. The subject today, New Orleans-born cartoonist George Harriman. In the 1910s, he created one of the greatest and most influential comic strips ever, Crazy Cat. That's with two Ks, by the way. And our teacher is Michael Tisserand. He has written several nonfiction books about New Orleans people and culture. And his latest is called Crazy, George Harriman, A Life in Black and White. It's about Harriman's life and the secret that only came to light after his death. When we spoke, I greeted Michael like this. Michael, welcome. Thank you, Rico. Great to be at the party. Thanks for, thanks for joining us here. We will get to the secret in a minute. Let's tantalize the listeners with that. Okay. But first of all, Crazy Cat, not incredibly popular in its day. And I would bet most people have never encountered it in the modern day. Summarize what the strip was like and what made it great. Yeah, George Harriman was a cartoonist cartoonist, so all his peers loved him. And the intellectuals of the day would write articles about how he was a genius. Uh, but then in the Hearst newspapers, where his comic strip Crazy Cat ran, this horrible thing, a reader's poll would take place. And they would ask readers, name your favorite comic strip. Mm-hmm. And Crazy Cat always sank to the bottom and was dropped out of the paper after these polls. Yeah, sure. And, and I get the feeling sometimes that George Harriman would call one of his friends and say, quick, I need an article in Esquire to keep my job. <laughs> and they would run another piece saying, you know, George Harriman, the greatest genius in comics. Uh, oh, I see. But Crazy Cat is a comic about a little white mouse named Ignatz and a black cat named Crazy Cat and a dog named Officer Pup. And it's kind of a love triangle, uh, but it, it's a love triangle that goes in lots of different directions. Ignatz is obsessed with throwing a brick at Crazy Cat. Crazy Cat receives the brick as a true sign of Ignatz's love. And Officer Pup harbors a secret, deep, and unspoken love for Crazy Cat himself. Ignatz has a wife and three kids, by the way, but that didn't seem to matter much. And neither does it matter to all these characters that Crazy is both male and female, or neither, or both. Uh, Crazy Cat is... Uh, invented in 1910 as a gender-fluid cat. Was that? I mean, had anything like this ever appeared before? No, and it, it drove readers crazy. Uh, <laughs> with, a C, with a C. <laughs> um, Capra, you know the filmmaker who did uh, It's a Wonderful Life? Frank Capra, sure. Yeah, he, uh, he visited George Harriman one time and said, what's up with this cat? Why is it both male and female? And Harriman said he tried to make Crazy Cat a female one time and tried to make it male, but decided that it worked best to have Crazy Cat like a sprite. Uh, mm-hmm. free, to, free to butt into anything, free to do whatever Crazy Cat wants to do. Kind of like Ariel, the sprite in, yeah. in Shakespeare's Tempest. Crazy, uh, George Harriman was a really smart and well-read guy, by the way. And he was always bringing in Shakespeare and Dickens and Cervantes and all these things into the comic. If you were going to draw a line, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> no pun intended, from Harriman right, I... to modern artists <laughs> and humorists, who would you yeah. pick? I know looking at the panels reprinted in the book, I kept thinking of uh, the comic strip Mutt. Well, yeah, and Patrick McDonnell is a student of George Harriman, and visually and 
spiritually, I would even say, is, is a follower of George Harriman. There's a, a light, delicate joyfulness in Mutz that comes out of Crazy Cat and Ignaz. But also, uh, Charles Schultz said when he came back from the military service, when he came back to the United States, he came across this book of Crazy Cat that E.E. E. Cummings had put out. And mm-hmm. those Crazy Cat comics convinced Charles Schultz that he needed to do something beyond just a cartoon about cute little kids and bring in more depth and substance and more of his personal feelings into the strip. And that's what created Charlie Brown and Snoopy and Peanuts. In a way, all this talk about Harriman's work is kind of secondary, though, to the fascinating tale of Harriman's life. Your book is subtitled The Life in Black and White, and that is because for basically his entire life, Harriman passed as a white man when in fact he was a person of color. First of all, tell us the story of how that fact even came to light. Yeah, in the early 1970s, there was a man who was going to write a, about George Harriman for a Dictionary of American Biographies, I think it was called. Yep. He sent off the birth certificate, and George Harriman's birth certificate showed up, and it said, uh, from New Orleans, born in uh, August 22nd, 1880, George Harriman, and then in parentheses, colored. And he decided, well, this can't be George Harriman because he's, he's not a black guy. It must be a different George Harriman. It must be a different George Harriman. But indeed it was. It turned out to be our George Harriman. And that was doubted for a long time in comics scholarship and by others. And people were kind of right to doubt it because there, are, there is a lot of funny business that goes on in New Orleans city halls when it comes to birth certificates and racial designations. There have been sort of famous stories of people going, that family says they're white, they're not white, and scratch, scratching out things on the birth certificates and things like that. Actually, one thing in the early chapters of your book that you do vividly get across is just how bewilderingly complex race relations were in turn of the right. century in New Orleans that he was born to. There are all these different levels of status for non-whites with different laws mm-hmm. and traditions governing each one of them. Well, absolutely. George Harriman came out of a very multi-layered society. And the subtitle, Life in Black and White, is also about a man who came from complex, troubled New Orleans of the late 19th century and had to be fitted into a black and white world, a world in which you know he got the census uh, and he had to write down black or white. He had a choice there. And the fact that his, his family came from a, a white uh, riverboat captain from New York and a free woman of color. It's not easily answered as black or white, basically. It's not. A, in the, they're, they're creels of color, and it's a, a rich, complex tale. I will say, though, that one of the first questions you raise in the book is when Harriman himself became aware of his background, because his parents also yeah. passed as white. What is the answer to that? Yeah, the phrase passing as white is such a... It is exactly what they did, but it's also this historic phrase that we're so glad to have, sure. you know, be back, be back there, you know, during that time. Um, what did he know and when did he know it? And what did the family talk about? I, I can't say for sure. I can't even tell you what his wife knew. And Herman never talked about it. He's known for always wearing a, uh, a hat. Uh, to cover his hair. To cover the tight curls in his hair. And he was working in newspapers where, uh, you know, a black man couldn't work. He was living in places where a black man couldn't live. He was married to a white woman, which was something that blacks were being lynched for at the time. And then in 1902, when he was 22 years old, he did this comic that lasted for just four or five episodes called Musical Moe's. And it was about a black man who set out to do an impersonation of a Scotchman or an Irishman or an Italian and go play music. So he'd pick up the fiddle and go play an Irish song. And everyone would say, listen to that beautiful music. And the next panel, they'd get a look at him and they'd pummel him down. He was addressing these issues and trying to speak to it in the only way he could, through his art. Through his art. Through his art. Let me close this out just by talking to you as a fan. What is your favorite moment in Crazy Cat? The, the one that really hit me the hardest, it kind of stopped me in my tracks when I encountered it, 
was one he had done just after his daughter died. His daughter died young. She had a seizures throughout her life. She died in the late 1930s. And he did this crazy cat comic of crazy cat sleeping out in the desert by a campfire and a star falls. And crazy cat says, uh, you know, it's just a baby star and takes the pillowcase off of the pillow and holds it over the campfire and creates a little hot air balloon and attaches a star to the hot air balloon and sends it back up to the sky. Mm-hmm. And then a note falls down and says, I'm happy now, I'm back home, thank you. And in the last panel, Officer Pup and Ignatz walk by and Crazy's sleeping happily at the campfire again and they look at this note and they say, do you think, think he had anything to do with this? Nah. It's such a, a personal statement of grief and love to show up in the comics. Michael Tisseren, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been a pleasure being here. Thank you. Michael Tisserand, his new book is called Crazy, George Harriman, A Life in Black and White. It's in stores now. And that concludes the Dinner Party download for this week. Next week, filmmaker Ava DuVernay stops by to talk about her scathing new documentary, and the movie musical she's embarrassed to call her favorite film. That's right. Till then, you can keep up with us on our Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. Jackson Musker is our senior producer. James Kim is our associate producer. Our associate digital producer is Christina Lopez. Thanks to Bill Lance and Brad Fisher for engineering. A hearty welcome to our new associate producer, Krista Ripple, by the way. Here, here. And now, before we leave you, here's One for the Road, a song to spend on your way to or returning from this week's parties. Back in 1997, the late great singer-songwriter Elliot Smith put out an album of sad, hush songs called Either Or. In a few months, it gets reissued in honor of its 20th anniversary, and it features outtakes like this one. It's called I Figured You Out. Bon appétit. I see you watching her every time she crosses the floor So why don't you just go talk to Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks for listening. Hey, guys. Glad I could make it. Uh, hi, Mick Jagger. Our show's only an hour long. Our invitation said we tape you between noon and one. Yeah, I read it, so I'm here at 12.59. Now you've typed me, right? Yeah. yeah. I guess, just now. Great. Goodbye. That was our fault. It was our fault.